0: Chapter Twenty Part Two of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume One by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Twenty Part Two The Dial was well received, had a large subscription list the jews especially interesting themselves and received good notices from the press throughout the state ralph waldo emerson alluding to the title that of the magazine edited by himself and margaret fuller said he would send me a contribution if only because of my memory i was cheered by letters from longfellow charles norton and frothingham among the notices of the press one moved me deeply It was in the Ohio State Journal, published at Columbus, and is as follows. That men should say what they think outside of Boston is, of course, astonishing. That they should say what they think inside of Cincinnati rather relieves the marvelousness of the first astonisher. It is not true that men's minds are expanded in proportion as there is a good deal of land to the acre, or that a generous climate and fertile soil grow warm rich hearts after half a century's stultification we like that newspaper word the nation is beginning to discover that true hospitality courage and generosity have their home in the north and not in the south and we all know that the frozen hills of new england have sheltered in their bleakest ravines the spirit of free thought and open speech after it has been banished from the South, the West, and the mercenary cities of the Middle States. Until now Boston has been the only place in the land where the inalienable right to think what you please has been practiced and upheld. If Cincinnati can place herself beside Boston on this serene eminence, she will accomplish a thing nobler than pork, sublimer than more magnificent than Pike's Opera House. The Dial is an attempt on the part of intellectual Cincinnati to do this, and the attempt is a noble one. We do not ask anybody to endorse the views of M.D. Conway, but we hold up his course as one of brilliant success in everything that makes success honorable, as that of a man singularly unselfish and devoted to what he believes the truth he is the editor of the dial but the dial while it represents his views shows the time of day by every intellectual light that shines upon it it numbers among its contributors some of the most distinguished thinkers of new england and it seeks to bring out all the thinkers of the west the january number which was experimental has been before the public some time the february number lately issued announces the fixity of the dial for one year at least the contents of this number are the christianity of christ the second article on that subject by we believe the editor the word a learned and entertaining paper on philosophical philology walden woods and walden water poems by mr sanborn of boston known popularly by his connection with the john brown excitement THE NATURE OF MORAL ACCOUNTABILITY, by the late James M. Espy, the eminent meteorologist, who, with his dying hand, directed its publication. ON PRAYER, AN ATTACK UPON PRAYER, QUATRAINS, by Ralph Waldo Emerson, THE CATHOLIC CHAPTER, GRAINS OF WHEAT, GATHERED FROM EVERY FIELD, by the editor, AND CRITICAL NOTICES. THE MAGAZINE IS TWO DOLLARS PER YEAR the editor, to be addressed. But let no one who fears plain speech on the most vital subjects subscribe. It is the organ of profound thinkers, merciless logicians, and polished writers. Something like an old Methodist hallelujah rose to my lips when I read that article. It was not because it praised my magazine. The papers were all doing that, It was because of the revelation that a man who could write like that was out there in Ohio, not farther away than Columbus. I ran with the paper to my wife as if I had found a fortune, and, indeed, such it proved. It was not long before I was meeting the author, William Dean Howells, face to face, and not long before I was deep in his first book, Poems of Two Friends, written jointly with J. J. Pyatt the dial for march eighteen sixty declared this the most appetizing little book and also said mr howells has intelligence and culture graced by an almost hynesque familiarity with high things and if it were not for a certain fear of himself we should hope that this work was but a prelude to his sonata as it is we are not very sure that it would not be well to take the anti-publication pledge for a year or so the time to be devoted to amputation of all classics and models which incline him to prefer a luxurious sedan to honest limbs given by nature when this was written i had not seen howells or my impression of his poetry would have been expressed with more lowliness as it was i added we should not venture to speak thus had we not a real confidence in the genius and promise etc Nevertheless it happened to be the first greeting of Howell's first book, and although when I presently got to know the man I was angry with myself at the inadequacy of the notice, it was made much of by the young author. Never shall I forget the day when he came to see us in Cincinnati. There was about him a sincerity and simplicity, a repose of manner along with a maturity of strength, surprising in a countenance so young and i must add beautiful that i knew perfectly well that my new friend had a great career before him the cheer of howells was all the more precious to me because it was animated by a pure literary spirit i found however that he had strong anti-slavery feelings and at the very time was writing a life of abraham lincoln howells seemed to have read everything at least whenever i mentioned any writer or work I found he had been searching the same. I went with him wherever he wished to go in Cincinnati, gladly laying aside all work to see as much of him as I could during his brief visit. In the evening we went together to the house of Miss Norse, a distinguished teacher, and there Howells first met the young lady who became his wife. Although Howells was above all the youth of letters and a student, his writing was blood-tinctured of a veined humanity and i need hardly remind those acquainted with anti-slavery history that his widely copied poem on margaret garner the hunted fugitive was the most important thing inspired by that and the like tragic events as an inspiration of the time i remember no poem equal to it howells contributed four exquisite little poems to my dial and in that way as well as by my use of his little book Our circle of friends in Cincinnati soon knew what a treasure we had at Columbus. In the first number of the dial appeared a tale I had written in December 1859 and finished at Christmas. During that month little was thought of except the execution of John Brown and his men. The tale was in three parts and entitled Excalibur, A Story for Anglo-American Boys. It purports to be told by an uncle to his nephews and nieces during Christmas-time in two successive years, the name of the home, Kenmore, being a remembrance of the home of Washington's sister, Mrs. Fielding Lewis, in Fredericksburg, Virginia. On Christmas Eve Uncle Paul, entreated for a story, relates that of Excalibur, the wonderful sword made by a nymph under the sea and coming to Arthur who alone could draw it from the stone in which it was set. In his hand, because it struck only for justice, it never failed. The dying King Arthur had it hurled into the sea. In the second part, Uncle Paul relates how, after many centuries, a fisherman found the sword in his net and brought it to Frederick the Great, who wears and wields it when delivering oppressed countries from Austria. And finally, sends it to George Washington, engraved with the words, From the Oldest General in the World to the Greatest. Part the Third is told by Uncle Paul a year later, 1859, and relates to John Brown of Harper's Ferry, concluding as follows At last the old man went down into the same neighborhood where Excalibur had gone. A divine madness seized upon him as it is written oppression maketh a wise man mad but whether such madness be not the wisdom of god which is foolishness with men we are not all calm enough now to judge soon john brown bore in his hand the never-failing sword excalibur in his hand it conquered a whole nation presently Twenty-nine other nations came to help the one, and this old man and his sons were taken prisoners, but not till then. Such is the power of the sword, which strikes for justice and liberty. On the second day of December 1859 they hanged that old man by the neck until he was dead, for loving his neighbor as himself, for stooping to heal the wounded Jew for remembering those who are in bonds as bound with them. But as he died he was more victorious than he had ever dreamed of being. He melted a million hearts and poured them into the molds of freedom. Excalibur still waits for the hand of its next true king, who will be he that can conquer without it. It has made its wound, piercing beneath the scales of the dragon, and that wound can never be healed. His fierce writhings and threatenings only tell us how the blow touched the seed of life. Let us trust that it need never strike again. Let us pray that about it may grow up a people who know the power of the sword of the Spirit, the love that never faileth, and who may wield the weapon which is not carnal so truly that the strongholds of evil shall fall and the kingdom of purity and peace be established. My skepticism was evidently limited to subjects within the scope of my profession. The conventionalized Frederick was accepted without question, and the legend of his sending an inscribed sword to George Washington was with equal confidence revived and given the stamp of authenticity. Some years later when Carlyle told me that the story of Frederick's sending a sword to George Washington was an absurd fiction, I searched into the matter and found that he was right. And later I found reason to believe that it was through John Brown's effort and delay in getting hold of that fabulous sword that he and his men lost their lives. Really sacrificed to a small superstition about a very insignificant sword— It is now in the State Library at Albany. Brown and his men were regarded as martyrs in the North, while the panic they caused in the South led the way to the Civil War. Such was the disastrous result of what appeared a pretty myth. Soon after my tale appeared, I received a round robin of thanks for it from the entire Fremont family, parents and children which set me dreaming when, early in the war, General Fremont issued his Proclamation of Emancipation in Missouri, which President Lincoln cancelled. The Dial of December 1860 opened with a parting word, and this began. With this number the publication of the Dial ceases. The simple reason for this is that the editor is unable to bear the labor it adds to his usual and necessary duties at the close the epitaph of my magazine is given in the word resurgam the dial at the end of the first year was really slain by the union war several months in advance of its outbreak for five months after the election of president lincoln while the farther southern states were seceding The struggle was between the anti-slavery and the Unionists, who proposed pacification of the secessionists by a total surrender of freedom. We at Cincinnati were in the very thick of this conflict of pens and words, and it was impossible to continue the literary and philosophical discussions of the Dial. Promising to register only serene hours, the Dial closed up under the persistent storm and its hope of resurrection also perished. But in the year that it lasted, my magazine merited the praise bestowed on it by Howells and other literary men. Should the time arrive when the West is interested in its intellectual and religious history, the dial will be found a fair mirror of the movements of thought in that period of extraordinary generous seeking. An able work by Octavius B. Frothingham ran through nine numbers of the dial, The Christianity of Christ. This work, which filled a hundred and thirty pages, is by no means a series of sermons, but an original critical treatise representing the scholarship and genius of New York's brilliant minister. Emerson contributed The Sacred Dance, Song of the Spinning Dervish, Translated from Von Hammer's Redekunste, Twelve Quatrains, and An Essay on Domestic Life, One of His Finest. Footnote. With reference to this article for which I was hoping, and to the death of Theodore Parker, Emerson wrote, June sixth, 1860, My dullness and incapacity at work has far exceeded any experience or any fear I had of it. It has left me more time lately to do nothing, in many attempts to arrange and finish old manuscripts for printing, than ever before I think to do what I could best. For the scrap of paper that I was to send you, after visiting Philadelphia, Dr. Furness, when he came here, told me it was not to go. Then I kept it to put into what will not admit anything peaceably, my religion chapter, which has a very tender stomach on which nothing will lie. They say the ostrich hatches her eggs by standing off and looking at it, and that is my present secret of authorship. Not to do quite nothing for you, I long ago rolled up and addressed to you an ancient manuscript lecture called Domestic Life, and long ago you may be sure familiar to lyceums, but never printed except in newspaper reports. But I feared you would feel bound to print it, though I should have justified you if you had not printed a page. For the question you now send me, all this is the answer. I have nothing to say of Parker. I know well what a calamity is the loss of his courage and patriotism to the country, but of his mind and genius. Few are less accurately informed than I. It is for you and Sanborn, and many excellent young men who stood in age and sensibility, hearers and judges of all his discourse and action, for you to weigh and report. I have just written to his society, who have asked me to speak with Phillips in the funeral oration, that I will come to hear, not to speak, though I shall not refuse to say a few words in honor. My relations to him are quite accidental, and our differences of method and working such as really required and honored all his Catholicism and magnanimity to forgive in me. So I shall not write you an essay, nor shall I in this mood, whilst I am hunted by printers, who do not nobly forgive, as you do, hope for reformation. But can you not, will you not come to Boston, to speak to this occasion of eulogies of Parker? End of footnote. I also printed an early address of Emerson's, long out of print, given on the anniversary of West Indian emancipation. Dr. M. E. Lazarus, a native of North Carolina, who had enjoyed the friendship of A. Toussaintel in Paris, translated for me some interesting passages from that mystic and naturalist, also Balzac's Ursula and A Drama on the Seashore there was one article by dr lazarus true principles of emancipation which i sometimes revert to even now as a wonderful specimen of individual utopianism it appeared in april eighteen sixty during the excitement following the execution of john brown and preceding the nomination of abraham lincoln when everybody had his post in some political regiment everybody except this native of north carolina and citizen of the world, as his paper was superscribed. He stood apart and beheld the evil of negro slavery as only an intensification, due to the special helplessness of the victims, of the universal evil of the commercial competitive system by which the human personality is enslaved. The negroes possess many fine qualities which are all ignored, by the domineering Anglo-Norman. The prolonged crucifixion of a martyr race demands a resurrection more humane than the liberty of selling oneself by the day, the cut-throat competitions of labor for wages, the outrages sanctioned by prejudice against color, careworn indigence, or paralyzed pauperism. Such emancipation would be but an exchange of evils For a race whose happiness consists in the obedience excited by kindness. We all want liberty in general, for the pleasure of surrendering it in particular and at discretion, just as we desire money for the purpose of spending it. It rests with the southern woman to render the whole slave code a dead letter, by taking care that the services in every home between white and black shall not be under commands or menaces but mutual spontaneous polite affectionate the inferior obeying from charm the will of the superior my editorial experiences brought me into contact with a number of people possessing something like genius and from some of them i expected large results myron b benton for instance wrote exquisite poems in the dial one of them, Orcus, surpassingly beautiful. I visited him in his charming home in Dutchess County, New York, where he lived a retired life. The sweet and delicate poet, he died near the close of 1902, was an enigma to me, but perhaps he had discovered with Shakespeare the blessedness of being little. W. W. Fosdick, a Cincinnatian, wrote two poetic and thoughtful pieces for the dial. He was a lovable man, but without enterprise, and while he had humour was rather melancholy. He was a great man in our chess club, and I think he would have accomplished something in literature had he been less fond of that time-consuming game. One day there entered my library, a middle-aged man over six feet tall, with a shaggy head, strong features large all-seeing dark eyes announced as orson murray he lived out in the country somewhere and brought me an essay on prayer he supposed i would not publish it but i did and it made an explosion like a bomb orson was a sort of john brown whose harper's ferry was orthodoxy but there was no blunder or miscarriage in this raid on prayer and he made a strong point about Brown, for whose rescue so many prayed. If Peter, Paul, and Silas could be delivered from prison in answer to prayer, why not John Brown? He was a better man than either Peter or Paul. It is not recorded of him that he was ever guilty of betraying his master, or of persecuting his master's church. I appended to this article, a defense of prayer as being part of nature, like the songs of birds, and to be improved by culture. More than two hundred articles, amounting to 778 pages, eight volumes, were published in the dial, of which I wrote thirty, besides seventy critical notices of new books. Among the contributions there was only one which I had to regret, an article by Mr. Vickers on Rufus Coet after his decease it was violent and spoke of him as an opium-eater it left me without proper examination just as i was going off on my vacation even had it been just i would never have printed it had i seen the proof for although i deplored that great lawyer's political course i personally knew that he was a man of fine domestic qualities and virtues yet his public life could not be defended by an anti-slavery man and I concluded not to call attention to it by any comment, but I expressed to his daughters my distress at its appearance. At the time when this article was appearing in my dial, assisting at a welcome to Hawthorne on his return from Europe. It was at a dinner of the literary club, and of the large number present every one except Hawthorne had groaned under the pro-slavery administration of President Pierce, elected, as some of us believed, by Hawthorne's campaign biography of him. Yet such is the privilege of genius that, instead of the Laisse Majesté of saying that the author of the scarlet letter had sold himself for a consulate, we had said of the odious president, After all, he did save Hawthorne from poverty. At the head of the table sat Agassiz, Hawthorne on his right, Emerson on his left, or perhaps Longfellow, Holmes and Lowell near. Hawthorne's repose was striking beside the vivacity of Agassiz, but he did not sustain his reputation for shyness. I was not near enough to hear what he said, but remarked his animation, and the fine candor of his expression. He appeared little older than when I had seen him seven years before, and in a sense improved by his heavy moustache though this concealed the feminine sweetness of his mouth there were no speeches at the dinner which i remember among the happiest i ever attended in america End of chapter twenty